Have you ever been on a road trip and then you hear that voice ask the question in the back seat, are we there yet? You know, maybe you got an eight hour drive ahead of you and you're not even out of the neighborhood yet and they're asking, are we there yet? It's hard just to be kind of cooped up in the back seat and wanting to be someplace. And you know, eight hours we know is not really all that long of a time, but it can feel like a really long time when you're just wanting to get someplace or when you're stuck in a small space. And the fact of the matter is we've all experienced that in one way or another. Maybe we're stuck in this line and this line just feels like it is taking forever. And we're wondering how long is this thing gonna last? It really may only be 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, but it feels like it's taking forever. We've all had experiences like that. Well, we aren't the only ones. The Israelites, they're going to have an experience like that as well. We'll see it this morning as we look at Exodus 31 and 32. You remember so far in our series, we've been studying hope for the 757, that the Israelites, they've received these commandments, the Ten Commandments. They've received the Law of the Covenant. And after they received them, they're excited. They're going in. Yes, we're going to do this. We're we're all in. And after that happens, Moses comes down the mountain and he tells the guys, okay, hey, I'm going to go up and I'm going to continue this conversation with God. And while I'm gone, Aaron, her, you guys are in charge. And so Moses goes back up the mountain. And that's what we've been looking at the past few weeks is while Moses is up on the mountain with God. God is giving Moses all of these instructions about the building of the tabernacle and the furniture that's going to be in the tabernacle and the garments that the priests are going to wear and the consecration of the priests and all this different stuff. And while this is taking place, well, back down the mountain, the people are growing restless because 40 days seems like an awfully long time without their leader, without Moses. And so they begin to take matters into their own hands. It's amazing just how quickly we can grow impatient, isn't it? I want you to see the consequences of that this morning. Let's go ahead. Let's look at Exodus 31. We'll begin in verse 18, and then we'll read through Exodus 32, verse 10. Exodus 31, 18 through Exodus 32, 10. It reads, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an, into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may, be, may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now, to help you kind of understand the primary argument of this section, you need to understand that Exodus 25 all the way through Exodus 40 is primarily talking about the worship of God. And so in Exodus 25 through Exodus 31, the worship of God is expressed through the tabernacle. And here's, and, and so you have all the instructions there. And it can be somewhat tedious, right? Just to kind of read through. We've been wading through that. And here's the instructions on how to build this. And here's the instructions on how to build that. And it's a little bit tedious to kind of work your way through and to read through. Then in Exodus 35 through 40, we'll see that that can be a challenging section because the building starts. It's a little challenging. To, to understand all of that, really. But then in this section here that we're kind of starting today, Exodus 32 through 34, well, this is the stuff of movies. I mean, this is, this is the action. This is the, this is the impact. This is the people forming a golden calf and turning away from God and God's response and his mercy and how Moses is going to interact with all of this. I mean, it's exciting. It gets you on the edge of your, of your, on the edge of your seat here a little bit because you see through all of this that hope that is lost can be restored. That's what we're going to see this morning. Well, before we get all there, let's go ahead and kind of finish up Exodus 31 and that section, really it's the building of the tabernacle section and the way that God instructs his people to worship him. And so God, he does finish up with the instructions. And as he finishes up, he says, okay, here are the two guys that I want to lead this project. Here's the chief builder and here's his assistant. And God says, I have given them this gift of architecture and I've given them the skill to understand all this and how they can make things and build things and craft these beautiful things. You see, it's interesting. So often we, we think that we just like to divide life between the secular and the spiritual. And here's God, and he's showing the people, no, all of life is spiritual. These gifts that these people had to do this architectural work, this woodworking and all this, to understand the processes of how to do all this, well, that's a gift. That's a spiritual gift. This is a blessing that I've given to them. And see, whatever gift you have, maybe it's finances, maybe it's marketing, maybe it's some kind of creativity thing, maybe, maybe it's the gift of just understanding technology, maybe it's construction. Whatever gift you have, well, that's a gift from God. All of life is spiritual. And so now these men, they, they're going to be asked to use their gifts that God has given them for the advancement of God's kingdom and his worship. And that's how we're supposed to use our gifts as well. No matter what gift you have, how are you going to use that for the advancement of God's kingdom so that he can be worshiped? So... The builders are established. You got the chief builder, you got his assistant. And then God says, all right, get to work. And as they work, just remember, rest on Saturday. You keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, it's different for us today. We don't, we don't have a day that we set aside for rest. We find our continual rest in Jesus because he is now our Sabbath, Hebrews tells us. So we rest continually every day in him. So the rest looks a little different for us in, 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 our, in our time today. But all these instructions are given. And as Moses is, is receiving these instructions from God, well, something is happening back down the mountain because down the mountain, 
as Moses is hearing, hey, here's what proper worship looks like. Here's how I am to be worshiped. The people are just going to choose to worship God however they want. God is up on the mountain giving Moses the, the, the tablets, the stone tablets that he's writing in there with his finger. This is what worship is to be like. This is the covenant that I'm establishing with my people. And as he's writing this in stone, the people down there, they are breaking all of the commands. They're worshiping God however they want, not following those commands that they had just said 40 days prior. Yes, we're all in. This is what we want. And it really is a terrible thing just how fast they can cast it aside. Because the people, <laughs> they're, they're looking at one another and they're saying, hey, remember that guy Moses? I mean, the guy who led us out of Egypt and everything? We don't know where that guy is anyway. We, we, knew, we need a new leader. I mean, they're so dismissive of him. You need to understand, when they're referring to Moses, it is a pejorative. It is a put-down. They're slamming him. Oh, just that guy. You remember that fellow? That, that guy, I mean, what, what's his name again? The guy who led us out of Egypt? I mean, this is how they're talking about him. It, it's terrible just how fast they're willing to cast Moses aside and say, oh, whatever that guy's name was who led us, he's gone. Let's just make our own gods now. It's so dismissive, it's so disrespectful, but it gets worse because Aaron, Moses' brother, the man who's been put in charge to lead in Moses' absence, he actually facilitates this ungodly request. And so he says, all right, yeah, let's go for it. Hey, why don't you just bring all the gold that you have in camp, take off your earrings, everything, bring them to me. And he forms a cast to make an idol in the fire. And he puts it all in, he melts it in, in this cast. And out comes this golden calf that he forms and fashions in the fire. Now, if you've been with us through our whole series through the book of Exodus, we've seen God continually intervening on behalf of his people, continually demonstrating kindness to his people. I mean, these people, they didn't have a leader. They're wandering around in Egypt, slaves in Egypt. I mean, it's terrible. They did not have a leader, someone who would advocate for them. And what does God do? He raises up Moses. He, he calls out an advocate for them, a leader for them. The people, they're, they're just complaining. They just want a better form of slavery. This is, their, this is how big their dreams get. They want a better form of slavery in Egypt. And what does God do? Well, he initiates his kindness again and he gives them freedom. The people, they begin complaining as they're out of Egypt and they're wandering around. Oh, we want some food. We want some water. Where, where, where are we going to get it? All this stuff. And what does God do? He continually provides for them. All they have to do is step outside their tent and manna from heaven, water from the rock. He continually intervenes for them, providing for them. He gives them laws and a set of conduct and morality and ethics. And the people are excited about it. And yes, this is how we ought to live. This will be different from how everyone else lives. This, these laws are for our good. They recognize this, how God continually initiates kindness to them. And now the moment they get stressed, the moment that they feel like, Where, where's Moses? Where did he go? How quickly they turn all of that aside and they reject God's kindness. And instead, they just search within themselves. And they say, well, hey, remember that calf in Egypt? You know, there's that golden calf thing. Why don't, why don't we get one of those? Because you remember also the plagues that God had struck the Egyptians with? 
One of the plagues was a plague against the livestock. And all of the livestock died. It was God's way of showing that he was superior to that false bull God that the Egyptians had and they worshiped and how the little Egyptian cow God, how he actually had no power at all and he was actually no God at all, that he could not provide for the Egyptians, that he could not preserve or protect the Egyptians, that he was no God at all. And now the Israelites, this is the God they run to. And they actually say, I mean, did you hear Aaron say it? This is the one who led you out of Egypt. After God had done all this, they're now giving credit to the false bull God. I mean, everyone was there. Everyone saw the destruction. Everyone saw all the livestock killed. They smelled the stench of death in the air because this this false God had been killed. God had proven that he was superior, that he alone is God. And yet they run back to this. Why? Because they get nervous. They get a little scared. Where's Moses? Where's our leader? Well, let's just find one for ourselves. Hey, remember the Egyptians? They had that golden calf God. Why don't we just go ahead and make one of those? And so this is what they do. I mean, it is terrible. But see, here's the thing. Rebellion against God makes you act like a fool. Rebellion against God makes you act like a fool. It makes you do things uh, that you wouldn't ordinarily do. It makes you seek provision in things that cannot provide for you. It makes you seek value in things that are unvaluable. It makes you go to people who cannot speak truth to you and will lie to you, but you trust their wisdom anyway. I mean, this is what rebellion against God does. It makes you act like a fool. This isn't just the story for the Israelites. It's our story as well. I mean, we see it all over our society. I mean, this is what our culture tells us. Oh, you need an answer for that? You just look within yourself. I mean, you just kind of find the answer within yourself because you know what's best for you. I mean, this message, it gets drilled into our heads. You find out what's right for you. You define you. What does scripture mean to you? You choose for you because you know what's best for you. See, rebellion against God, it makes us act so foolishly. It makes us think that we know best. I mean, this is what our culture tries to tell us. This is what the Israelites believed. And so as we rebel, we fail to acknowledge God. We fail to acknowledge him for the countless ways, the countless mercies that he's demonstrated for us. I mean, this is what the Israelites are doing. God has demonstrated mercy after mercy after mercy, kindness after kindness after kindness, and they reject all that. They just search within themselves. Oh, yeah, there was that bull God. Let's make one of those. We do the same thing, and then we begin to ascribe value to ourselves or to other people. Why? Because things might turn out good. You know, oh, this worked well. And so, hey, that was my doing. I thought of that. You know, I I was the one who came up with that. Without me, well, I'm indispensable here. This is very important that I'm a part of this. And we ask ourselves, how are we feeling? What do we think? We're, We're the ones who make it happen. Sometimes we ascribe value to other people that really is deserving to go to God. Oh man, I didn't have any purpose in life until my spouse came along and they gave my life meaning. You know, my kids, they really gave my life value. They gave me purpose, a reason for being. And so there there was that person in my life and they saved me. 
Now, God may have used people in various ways to bring out that value and to bring out that meaning and to bring out that purpose that you have to lead you. But ultimately, if you do not recognize that it's God ultimately at work, man, you're acting foolishly and you're ascribing value to people or to things or to yourself who does not deserve that value. Because understand, God knows what's best for us. He knew what was best for the Israelites and he said, here's how you live. These laws are for your good. They're not to be a a weight on you, but they are for your good. To set you apart as a holy people, a righteous people, a good people. The Israelites, they throw all that aside and they run to the very thing that God had defeated in Egypt. I mean, it is tragic. So, God, he sees all this and he tells Moses, essentially, I've disowned them. Remember, the the people, they pretty much disowned Moses. Oh, that guy, that fellow who led us out of Egypt, now God is going to use the same language. Oh, those people, those stiff-necked people, those people, they've run into all of this kind of idolatry. This is what they're doing. You know, don't come interceding for me on behalf of those stiff-necked people. And then God goes on and he says, just leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. I mean, understand, Israel's sin, it deserved to be disowned. And you get that language, those people, as God disowning them. They deserve to be abandoned. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk about this. They deserved to be utterly destroyed. That's what God's saying he's going to do. I'm going to leave me alone so that I may destroy them. See, this is what our sin deserves as well. Our sin deserves for us to be disowned, to be abandoned, to be destroyed. That is what sin deserves. But Moses, he intervenes anyway. I mean, it's incredible. Moses goes to God and he says, God, I mean, if, if you just destroy these people, what are the, what are the Egyptians going to say? I mean, you brought them all the way out of Egypt. You did all this just so that you can destroy them there. I mean, what, what would that say about you, God? You, you can't do that. And so he has this conversation there with God. Now, this doesn't show that Moses has more compassion for the Israelites than God does or that Moses somehow loves the Israelites more than God does. No, what it is showing here is that it's, it's highlighting the heart change that God has brought about in the heart of Moses. That now Moses loves and has compassion for these people just the way that God did when he raised up Moses to be a leader for them way back in the beginning. When Moses thought, I, I can't do it and I don't even care that much. You know, it's, it's great if it's going to happen, but somebody else can do it. Now Moses, he's, he now has this heart and this compassion for the people where he's going to stand in the gap. I'm going to be a mediator for these people. I'm going to look after these people. And so Moses does. He goes down the mountain. And as he's going down the mountain, he sees Joshua. Joshua's not with everybody else. Joshua's not worshiping the golden calf, this cow god. He's not doing that. He's, he's set apart. See, Everyone can be doing one thing, and it can be a wrong thing. It doesn't mean that you have to be a part of it, too. You can be set apart. You can distance yourself. You don't have to go with the group and do what everyone else is doing when they're acting foolishly. This is what Joshua does. He is set apart. And so he sees Moses coming down, and they talk with one another, and Joshua says, man, it sounds like a battle cry or something going on down there. Are they getting ready for war? 
And Moses says, no, those, those aren't battle cries. This is something else is happening. And Moses gets there and he sees the people partying. I mean, they are just dancing and they're hooping and they're hollering all in worship of this false God who is no God, no power whatsoever, this bull God. And Moses is hot. I mean, he is angry. And remember, Moses represents God to the people. He represents God to the Israelites. And so he takes these tablets, the tablets that were just written, the tablets that God inscribed with his finger in stone, these precious tablets that signified this covenant that God had established between himself and Israel, this, this covenant to which God intended the Israelites to be a people who were holy, to be set apart, this, these precious tablets Moses takes them and he smashes them to the ground. I mean, he breaks them into pieces. Now, you need to understand that, yes, Moses is angry. Yes, he's hot. Yes, he's upset. But this was not just some kind of irrational outburst of anger here. This is a ceremonial action that Moses is performing. The people in that culture, the people of that day, they would have known just what was happening. They would have got it because this is a symbol of the covenant relationship between God and his people being destroyed because it shows that the people had violated it. They had destroyed the covenant that God had made because they just decided to worship God, a false God, however they wanted. They had turned their back. They had turned away from the way God was calling them to do their own thing. And the breaking of these tablets, well, it symbolized that to them. They, they could see it right in front of them. They had broken the covenant. And in breaking the covenant of God's law, God now, he had the right to disown them to abandon them, to destroy them because they had violated the relationship. So after this display, Moses, he goes straight to his brother. He goes straight to Aaron, the one he had left in charge while he was gone. And I, I want you to see this interaction that takes place. It's Exodus 32 verses 21 through 24. It reads, And Moses said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. You know, this is one of those scenes that you almost have to laugh at to keep yourself from crying because it really is a heartbreaking scene. Moses comes to his brother and he tries to give Aaron the benefit of the doubt. Did you see that? What did the people do to you, Aaron, that, that you allowed this to happen? I mean, did they, did they just tie you up? Did they, did they threaten the life of your wife or your sons? I mean, what, what happened, Aaron? I mean, did this mob rule just kind of take over? I mean, what happened that you could have allowed this? He's giving Aaron the benefit of the doubt. And it seems as if Aaron's just going to like kind of grab onto this like flimsy excuse and just kind of run with it. And he's, oh yeah, Moses. I mean, you're right. You know how evil those people are. I mean, they're, they're terrible. They, they want to do all this. They're saying all this to me. And you know, I, I, I didn't know quite what to do. I just said, hey, give me your gold. And I just threw it into the fire. And what do you know? This calf popped out. 
I mean, it's incredible. You go back and you read what happened. No, Mo, uh, Aaron spent time. He, he fashioned a cast uh, of an idol. He put the gold in there. I mean, he went through the processes. He wasn't compelled to do any of this. This is the way he led. And now these are the excuses he's giving. I mean, he's just pointing the finger at them and, oh yeah, you know, they are so evil. I mean, they came to me, they were making me do this and I didn't quite know what to do. I just threw it in, out it came. I mean, the, the, how just unattractive are excuses? It, it is so unattractive, isn't it? When people just make excuses for their sin and, oh, well, you know, this was going on, that was happening, I did this, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal, it wasn't my fault, I mean, it was a little mistake, no harm, no foul. I mean, it's so unattractive. We see it so clearly in this passage. It's painful because Aaron, he had committed a great sin. Notice what Moses says, against the people. Why? Because he had led them to pursue already their inner lust for idols. And, he, and, and Aaron facilitated that. And he committed a great sin against them in doing this. His failure to lead results in all kinds of atrocities. And we'll see more of it. But don't make excuses for your sin. Don't make excuses for your sin. Don't be like Aaron. I mean, we see how unattractive it is here. But this is what sin leads us to do. It leads us to want to try to make excuses, to be defensive, to come up with all these reasons of why, try to minimize it. Oh, it wasn't really that big of a deal. It was just a mistake, you know. No, we own it. We explain, yeah, this is what I did. And I realize how that hurt you. I realize the depth of pain that I've caused. I realize the fracturing of the relationship that resulted because of what I did. We name it. We don't minimize it. We don't, we don't give it a lesser name to try to make it sound not as bad. We own it. And we see that throughout the scriptures, right? I mean, remember Zacchaeus? <laughs> remember Zacchaeus? He was the swindling tax collector who's hiding up in the sycamore tree. And then he's invited to have dinner with Jesus. And after that dinner, there's this heart change that takes place in the heart of Zacchaeus. And he knows the hurt he's caused. He knows the damage that he's done. And so what does he do? He says, all those people that I've defrauded, I'm going back and I'm repaying all of them four times the amount. You, you see something similar with Onesimus. You remember Onesimus? He's the one who, who stole from Philemon and didn't fulfill his obligations to Philemon. And so as he's running away and abandoning Philemon, he meets Paul. Paul leads Onesimus to Jesus. And Onesimus, he needs a mediator to go between him and Philemon because of the depth of pain, because of the fracturing of the relationship that he has caused between himself and Philemon. And so Paul writes on behalf of Onesimus, and he says, hey, you need to receive Onesimus back as a brother. And whatever he's taken, whatever he's done, I will make restitution. I'll pay it back. I mean, but this is the heart of someone who's, who's, who's sinned greatly. I'll do whatever it takes to make things right. Aaron, he doesn't evidence any of that. He's just making excuses. He's just pointing fingers. He's, well, you know, who knows how in the world that happened. This calf just kind of came out of there. And we kind of laugh at it, but we laugh to keep ourselves from, from crying because it is heartbreaking to see the effects that this has. I mean, it, this is how Aaron handles it. And because he handles it in such a poor way, the Israelites, well, there's now, there's now fracturing among the camp when Moses gets back because some of the Israelites, they don't want to go with God anymore. They, they like their little false bull God. They like being able to indulge in all kind of revelry. They liked their rebellion. They liked all that. 
And so Moses, he comes and he, he assembles a group of men who will stand for the honor of the one true God. And they're actually going to have to do battle. Yeah, there were not war cries before, but there's some battle cries now because there's a battle that's about to take place in the camp because of Aaron's failure to lead properly. And so there's this battle that takes place and Moses and his men, they're going to kill 3,000 Israelite men who would rather have their idolatry than worship the one true God. All this takes place because of the great sin that Aaron committed in not leading his people when he should have. So Moses, after this battle takes place, he goes to the people and he tells them, yeah, you did. You committed this great sin. And then he goes up to have another conversation with God. It is an incredible conversation. I want you to see it. Exodus 32 verses 31 through 35. It reads, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague to the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. It's incredible, the heart, that the leader that Moses had become. We see that evidenced in this passage. I mean, it really just shines through. Moses, he humbly approaches God on behalf of the people. I mean, these people who had violated this covenant in just the most egregious uh, of fashion. And he said, I mean, it takes 40 days, only 40 days for them to so quickly turn aside uh, to their own form of idolatry. It's, it's just incredible. And Moses still, for these people who sinned so greatly, he approaches God on their behalf. And when he approaches, he does something different than Aaron did. He names it. I mean, he names the sin. He says right off, this is a great sin. This is a big deal. I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm not trying to make it seem like less than it is. I'm not going to try to make it sound like something magically just kind of happened or popped out of a fire. No, he names it. They collected gold. They formed the gold into gods. They made gods for themselves out of their gold. This is what they did. And it is wrong. I mean, he names just how great this sin is. He acknowledges the gravity of the sin. And you understand that's the right response to sin. When you acknowledge the pain, you acknowledge the gravity of your sin. And maybe you need to do that. Maybe, maybe there's some sin in your life that's just kind of hanging over you. And it's embarrassing to talk about. It's hard to talk about. You don't want to talk about it. You need to go to God and you need to just tell him, this is how I've sinned. This is how I've sinned against you. Maybe there's a person that, that you need to go to as well and you need to let them know, hey, I, this is what I did and I'm sorry. Maybe it's so egregious your sin that you need to take someone else with you the way that Onesimus had Paul just to kind of be a mediator in this. But th this is what you do. You acknowledge the gravity of your sin and this is what Moses is doing on behalf of the people. Moses, he does that and he tells God, God, whatever you decide to do, if you'll forgive, great. But if you decide to destroy them, 
Go ahead and destroy me along with them. It was incredible because God had made this offer earlier. Do you remember? He said, hey, Moses, I'm going to destroy all of them. Let me go ahead and be angry. Let me destroy all of them and I'll start over with you. And now Moses is saying, no, these are my people. I'm in charge of being a mediator for them. If you're going to destroy them, go ahead and destroy me too. It really is incredible. But this is the most that Moses could offer. There, there was nothing Moses could do to make things right for the Israelites. There was nothing he could do to atone for the gravity of their sin. He, he couldn't be this substitute to kind of make things right. The best Moses could offer is to say, whatever punishment they get, go ahead and give me the same kind of punishment. Now, the Israelites, they would need a better mediator, one who could actually atone, one could, who could actually be a substitute. That mediator would come. He would be a long time off, but he would come. He would come in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, the perfect mediator who mediated not only the sin of the Israelites, but your sin and my sin as well. He, he took all of that sin and he owned it. He didn't minimize it. He, he didn't make excuses for it. He owned it. He took it all upon himself and he died for it. He paid the price for all of that. And through the sacrifice of the one man, forgiveness is then extended to all men. You see, hope that is lost can still be restored. The people in the Israelites, I mean, it looked like hope was lost. I mean, they had turned their backs on God. They had run towards these idols. There was a war that broke out in the camp. I mean, hope seemed lost. Now they're, even their leader is saying, go ahead, destroy me along with everybody else, hope seems lost. But hope that is lost can be restored. Doesn't mean there won't be consequences. Israel would have to suffer some consequences for their sin. They would. God's going to send a plague. But hope that is lost can be restored. Heavenly Father, we thank you that while our sin deserves being disowned, abandoned, destroyed, that instead of all that, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect mediator, to be able to actually atone and to be a substitute for us and to take all of our sin, everything that deserves being disowned, abandoned, destroyed, and you took it all on him. You made him to be sin for us. And God, we thank you that your son, Jesus, he conquered that sin on our behalf so that hope that is lost really can be restored. Help us to live in that truth this week. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.